Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> it's good to be back. I was able to uh, <clears throat> come to the 8.30 service this morning and actually sit in the sanctuary. I haven't done that in so long, and what a delight to sing with you all. So good to be here. Good to be here tonight and to bring God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, your Word says that you love those who tremble at your Word. And we know that that's a trembling of joy. We tremble because of your majesty and greatness, but we tremble with joy because you are Abba, Father, and that you bend low to care for us. And we praise you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one born in Bethlehem and raised up in Nazareth, crucified in Jerusalem and raised to your right hand. And we come in his name tonight, Lord, praying that your Holy Spirit would help us understand this word and treasure it and live it out. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there is one <clears throat> inescapable, indisputable, most important fact about God, it is that He is holy. He is high and lifted up. He is infinitely greater than anything in His creation. In fact, infinitely greater than anything you can imagine. He is completely other than us. That means He's not just greater, He's different. He's not just the greatest being, he's the one and only God. And in his holiness, he is morally and spiritually perfect, impeccable, righteous, and just. And in his holiness, he responds to us. He responds to human hearts and behaviors. He is not morally indifferent. He is not tolerant. Or sentimental. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He commends what he loves. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he condemns what he hates. You wicked and slothful servant. And in the Bible, it's always the one or the other. Now tonight, as we continue through 1 Kings, from the life of Elijah... And ironically tonight, Elijah's not even in the story. What we have is a story about what God condemns. And on one level, it's just one more sordid story about the king of whom it was said he did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel, King Ahab. But on another level, it's about us. It's about attitudes and actions that are common to all of us. And in this story tonight, the Lord exposes and condemns them. And sometimes that's important for us. If we don't tremble before the Lord's holiness, we will not exult and delight in His love. So I would urge all of us, even kids, to pay attention, to listen carefully. So I'd invite you to open your Bible to 1 Kings, chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. 
we have here the story of a prized vineyard and a greedy king. <clears throat> First Kings 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. And then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters, she had said to them, They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God, and the people saying, I'm sorry, Naboth cursed God and the people. So they said, they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. I want us to look tonight at seven things the Lord condemns. The first thing in verses 2 and 3 is that God condemns seeing things in terms of selfish pragmatism rather than covenantal faithfulness. I'll say that again. God condemns seeing things in terms of selfish pragmatism rather than covenantal faithfulness. 
So here we have a vineyard that happens to be right next to the king's palace in Jezreel. And we have two men who see this plot of land very differently. First, there's Ahab. He sees this vineyard as a commodity to buy or sell according to his felt needs. I mean, it's convenient. It's right beside the palace. And it's useful. Oh, how I would love to plant a vegetable garden. There's nothing unusual here. These kinds of transactions between people, between businesses, they happen countless times every day. But Naboth sees this vineyard very differently. He doesn't see it as a commodity to buy or sell. He sees it as an inheritance from the Lord to treasure and to hold on to according to the law of God. Now, what law are we talking about? Well, in Ezekiel 45, verse 8, God himself says this, And my princes shall no more oppress my people, but shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. When the Israelites came into the promised land, each family received a plot of land. It was their own as an inheritance. They were to work it and provide for themselves, pass it on as an inheritance to their children and grandchildren, and most of all, worship the Lord who was so generous. So when Naboth hears Ahab come to him and say, give me this vineyard and I will give you another vineyard or the, the, the price, the amount of money for it, Naboth says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab views it commercially, but Naboth covenantally. Now what's the Lord's take on all this? Certainly, the Lord does not condemn business. People buy and sell every day. It's in the Bible from Revelation, or Genesis all the way to Revelation. What he condemns is seeing life as just a series of transactions where your worldly desires are your deepest motivation. Profit is your supreme value. People are pawns to manipulate to get the best deal. And the love of God and the love of your neighbor is swallowed up by the bottom line. That's what God condemns. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, or in this case, the love of a vineyard, is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, note that word, craving we could say is desire on steroids. Through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Second thing that God condemns flows right from that. In verse 4, we see that God condemns depressed pouting when you can't get what you want. Ahab did not just innocently desire Naboth's vineyard. 
He craved it. He needed it. He had to have it. And when he couldn't get it, he pierced himself with many pangs. In verse 4, we read that he came in vexed and sullen. It's just biblical for depressed. He lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Brothers and sisters, who does that sound like? It reminds me of my kids when they were two. But I think Ahab makes two-year-olds look good here. His desire had turned into a craving. So how do you know when mere desires, innocent desires, have become over-desires or cravings or demands or even God substitutes? Tim Keller says we should ask ourselves this question when we don't get what we want. He says we should ask ourselves the question, when I can't get what I want, am I merely disappointed or am I devastated? Can I deal with my disappointment and move on? Or like Ahab, do I pout and withdraw and refuse to engage with anything? God condemns over desires and overreactions in James 4, 1 through 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is strong language. You desire and do not have, so you murder? You adulterous people? You enemy of God? He's talking to believers here. But don't be fooled by the strong language. We might think that the only thing, the only thing that God condemns is when our, our reaction is violent and dramatic like Ahab and Jezebel. But remember, there's such a thing as hot anger, but there's also cool contempt. There's crimes of passion. There's also cold-blooded murder. There's attacking and there's withdrawing. There's verbal violence, and there's silent pouting. And they're all forms of hatred. And God condemns them all. Depressed pouting can be just as clear a sign of idolatry as uncontrolled rage. The third thing that God condemns is in verses 5 through 7. God condemns being a passive, unbelieving husband or a sarcastic, controlling wife. Notice the ways that Ahab shows himself to be passive and unbelieving. He came in vexed and sullen. He lay down on his bed and turned away his face. Now you might think, what's wrong with that? He's just trying to get away from everything. He's feeling discouraged. Well, listen to the way God interprets it in Hosea 7.14. The Lord says, they do not cry to me from the heart, 
but they wail upon their beds. See, Ahab's pouting on his bed is an expression of unbelief. He's not turning to God. He's just nursing his self-pity. And then in verses 5 through 7, again, he doesn't talk to God. Instead, he goes to talk to his wife, Jezebel. Talks to Jezebel about the problem, and then he leaves the solution to her. And again, we think, what's the big deal? Many of us have very, very competent wives who have great wisdom, and we often seek their wisdom and their counsel, as we should. And there are many important things that we would leave to them and feel very confident. So what's the problem here? The problem is that Jezebel has functionally become Ahab's God and Savior. He doesn't pray about anything. He doesn't take any action himself. His wife has become the de facto leader of the marriage and even the leader of Israel, the nation. And this goes against God's design that the husband be the leader of the marriage and the king the leader of the nation. Now at this point, some of you may be thinking, yeah, but there's other ways that husbands mess up, and that's true. Sometimes, tragically, husbands abuse their authority, and they become oppressive. But it's also true that probably just as many or even more abdicate their authority and become passive. Now, there's probably many reasons for husbands being passive and not good leaders in the home. And some of them may be temperamental or their background or maybe they're not as spiritually mature, whatever. Some of those are even understandable. But I think it often is exacerbated when a husband is neglecting his own spiritual disciplines. When he's not being fed, strengthened, challenged and transformed by the Lord, it becomes much harder to spiritually lead the family. It becomes much harder to nourish and cherish his wife. It becomes much harder to, in a loving, godly way, bring children up in the nurture and instruction and discipline of the Lord. And this creates a leadership vacuum in the home. And you can imagine where that often goes. In our story, Jezebel basically takes over the Naboth situation. She carries out her plan in a way that does not honor her husband. She asks a strange question. Do you now govern Israel? I'm sure that's a good literal translation, but it's a little ambiguous. The commentator Dale Ralph Davis takes it as a sarcastic jibe at Ahab. Some king you are, the New Living Translation says, are you the king of Israel or not, Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something and don't worry about it. I'll get you, Naboth's vineyard. And then in verses 8 through 14, she single-handedly plans and then carries out a plot to get the vineyard through deceit and murder while Ahab lies on the couch feeling sorry for himself. So there's a marital dynamic here that the Lord condemns. We see that it's tempting for many husbands to become passive and live a functionally unbelieving life 
And it's also tempting for many wives to respond to this by becoming critical and controlling, nagging, constantly telling the husband what to do, nursing a low-grade irritation, and occasionally delivering a very well-aimed put-down. How far from God's good design for marriage that Paul summarizes this way. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Fourth thing that God condemns is in verses 8 and 9. God condemns religious hypocrisy. Jezebel says, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Israel is the people of God. Let's do something religious. Let's proclaim a fast and let's give Naboth a place of honor. Sounds good. But it's a despicable perversion of a religious observance in order to practice deceit and carry out murder. This kind of hypocritical evil is condemned by God in both the Old Testament and the New. In Psalm 36, David says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good, and he does not reject evil. Sounds like Ahab. Sounds even more like Jezebel. Jesus condemns this same thing in Matthew 23. He condemns the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, and he even links it to murder. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. So my brother and my sister, do you deal with religious hypocrisy? Now I suspect that most of us are not living secret lives of sin and hiding it and trying to deliberately fake everybody out. Some are. Some of you may be. That's rank hypocrisy. But I suspect that for most of us, it's not so intentional. <clears throat> We're not trying to deliberately fool people. It's just that if the truth be told, we just come across looking better than we really are. I know I do. Fifth, God condemns legal injustice. Now, what's that mean? It sounds like an oxymoron, legal injustice. Well, Jezebel tells these people to have two witness, witnesses accuse Naboth of a capital crime, cursing God. So what she's doing is she's fulfilling the letter of the law in order to overthrow the spirit of the law. It's right to have two witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, 6 says, On the evidences of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. 
That's right. That's the letter of the law. Leviticus 24, 15. And speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. It should be a capital crime. It was. Problem is that the witnesses were lying. Naboth never cursed God. He never cursed the king. It's all a sham. Using the letter of the law to overthrow the spirit of the law. So what does legal injustice look like today? Well, you know the commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't lie about people. You don't withhold important information, especially if there's a, a legal proceeding. False witness. But you know, this kind of false witness happens even in our own homes and sometimes with real little people. So kids, let me talk to you for a second. Kids, have you ever done what I did when I was a kid? Have you ever done something wrong and mom or dad is coming and you know you're going to get it? So immediately you point usually to a younger brother or sister. He did it. She did it. I didn't do it. And then they get in trouble for what you did. I know I did that. I know my little brother did that. That's legal injustice. Kids, if you don't know what that means, ask your parents tonight when, 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 when you go home. Of course, legal injustice also would include laws that are inherently unjust, unjust like the laws against Jews in Nazi Germany, or Jim Crow laws in our own country, or laws that defend and promote abortion, or even the increasing collision that's happening between the sexual revolution and religious liberty in our own country. There are laws that can be passed that are unjust, but it also includes any unjust application of legitimate laws. And so, many people decry the fact that in many places, African-American young men are often stopped and arrested for what we would consider maybe low-level crimes at a much higher percentage than the white male population. How does God feel about legal injustice? There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Number six, the sixth thing that God condemns in this story is that he condemns cowardly accommodation to evil instead of courageous confrontation. And we find that in verses 14 through 16. This is probably the, the climax of the story. When these people come back to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And the silence screams... Not one person lifted a finger to try to stop this outrage. They knew it was wrong, and they accommodated the evil. Now, let's be honest. 
it would not be easy to stand up to Ahab and Jezebel. They have great power and they're very cruel. It was not easy for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to stand up to the Nazis in 1940s. It was not easy for a courageous Christian pastor to stand up to the Ku Klux Klan in the South. And it will not be easy to stand up legally against the sexual revolutionaries in our own day. It will take great courage. But again, Jesus condemns cowardly accommodation in Matthew 10. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that it will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So where do we accommodate evil today? I think often just in very quiet ways that nobody knows about. In our hearts, in our minds, things we think or fantasize about. Things we look at or listen to that we shouldn't. Things we might say that seem innocent. Little compromises. Sometimes it looks like conversations with family members or neighbors or co-workers about some of the cultural evils of our day, abortion or racism. We know what's right and what's wrong. We believe it, but we just can't get ourselves to say anything about it because we don't want to see those rolling eyes or hear those put-downs. And maybe we don't want to put our job or our promotion on the line, and so we accommodate evil instead of confront it. Now, I said we were going to look at seven things that God condemns. So far, we've looked at six. Before we look at the last one, I want to just stop and assess where we're at. What are we to make of these six condemnations so far? And I just want to remind you of some things I said at the very beginning. I said this, tonight's story from the life of Elijah is a story about what God condemns. On one level, it's just another sordid story about the king who did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than any other king. So on one level, God in this story condemns Ahab and Jezebel. That's obvious. That's the, that's the surface level. And we all agree with that. We don't have any problem with that. But I said on another level, it's a story that points out attitudes and actions that are common to us all. And the Lord exposes those and condemns those. In other words, this is a hard word. We're all condemned in this story. We're all in this story somewhere. And I hope you feel the weight of that. Because if you don't, the gospel will seem like a small thing. So let's look at one more thing that God condemns. It's not in this story. We have to jump to the New Testament. We're going to jump to Romans 8, which is the highest 
point in the Bible, I think. It's where you can see the farthest and the deepest. Now, Paul in Romans has, especially in the first three chapters, laid out his very scathing diagnosis of fallen humanity. No one does good, not even one. Sounds very much like this story. And then in Romans 7, Paul talks about himself and how he doesn't do what he should do, and he keeps on doing what he, sh what he shouldn't do, and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, <clears throat> who will deliver me from this body of death? And against that black background, Romans 8 starts out, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What? No condemnation? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Hear this. God condemned sin in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, God condemned your sin and my sin in Jesus' flesh. So the last thing that God condemns is His Son, and it's our salvation, because we're all condemned for our worldly desires and the ways we manipulate people to get what we want. We're all condemned for pouting and withdrawing when we don't get what we want. We're all condemned at times for being passive, unbelieving husbands or sarcastic, controlling wives. We're all guilty of religious hypocrisy and legal injustice, and we've all cowardly accommodated evil. But Paul boldly and confidently proclaims there is now, therefore, no condemnation no past condemnation, no present condemnation, not even any future condemnation. The future judgment has taken place on the cross. And Christ has been condemned in our place. God sent Jesus as our substitute and condemned your sin and mine in His flesh. Later in Romans, Paul asks the question, who is to condemn? Who could possibly condemn you? And then he says, it's Christ that died. More than that, who was raised for our justification. He sits in majesty at the right hand of God and intercedes for us every moment so that the justifying power of his blood is continually applied to us and so that our faith con continues, does not fail, but continues to look up and receive and experience no condemnation by faith. Maybe Charles Wesley said it as well as anyone. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. Brothers and sisters, do you see Jesus at the right hand of God? Can you see him with the eyes of faith? Do you see the wounds in his hands and feet and side? 
Can you hear him pleading for your forgiveness and your perseverance and eternal life with him? And can you just see with the eyes of faith the father bending down with a smile on his face and listening to every word that Jesus is pleading for you? And can you imagine over your life, your past, your present, and your future, can you imagine this banner over your life? There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Do you believe it? Can you receive it right now by faith? Will you rest in it and rejoice in it this week? Tomorrow when you get up, walk free and serve this living, loving God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what would it be like to stand in your court with you on the throne and to have the charges read against us? The psalmist said, if you keep a record of sins, Lord, no one could stand. And then to hear not guilty, even more than that, acquitted, righteous, no condemnation, go free. Oh, the relief, the joy, the wonder we would feel. And we would want to leave that courtroom with whatever time we have left, with whatever opportunities in the home, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace, in the church, in the world, and we would want to proclaim your mercies. And we would want to exult in Jesus Christ. And we would want to point people and lead people to his saving grace. We ask that you would make that true for us tonight, Lord, and this week, and every day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.